the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time stories, and powerful writing than The Athletic. Download the app, it's free to get. Personalize it with your favorite leagues and teams. And use theathletic.com slash spot track to register now. Get yourself started at 40% off for the next year. That's theathletic.com slash spot track. My name is Mike Chinetti. Happy Sunday. Happy final week of preseason. Happy NFL cutdown week. Here's the game plan for today. I'm super psyched about this show. Uh, one of the best guests I've been able to book for this thing. And I, I hope I stayed out of the way enough on this one because... <laughs> I could listen to Christy Dosh talk all day. I hope you can too. Um, I hope this means you'll grab her podcast, you'll grab her book, you will launch her website and bookmark it and stick with her because this girl knows exactly what she's talking about. She is deep into the business of college sports, plenty of financial stuff. She could go in any direction with this. She's big into the name image likeness now as well. She's tracking it, she's consulting with it. She's got her head in all of this and Nothing's changing faster and more drastically than college sports and the business of college sports. So this is your this is your point, and I'm thrilled to have her. She's on the back end of this show. Right after a quick open, five notable things happening right now across the business of sports. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Balanced Bridge Funding, providing cost-friendly capital solutions to professional athletes since 2015. Balanced Bridge has dedicated professionals who understand the industry, and a ready-to-customize repayment plan catered to your client's situation and financial objectives. Borrow wisely and cost-effectively, avoid broker fees, and there's no prepayment penalties if you pay it back early. Whether your client is under contract and needs a bridge against guaranteed earnings, a free agent looking for that next investment, or looking to borrow for any other reason, let Balance Bridge get a look, provide a solution, and be a resource for you and your client. Visit balancedbridge.com today. Okay. Five notable things happening in the world of sports right now. I'm going to fly through these. There's some fun ones here. There's some nerdy ones here. That's the whole package with Spot Track, right? Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Okay, number five. Today is the 25th anniversary of Tiger Woods' professional golf debut. Does that make you feel old? It makes me feel old. Okay. And look, it, it's, it's been a rough end here. He's, you know, he's an aging man. He's had his injuries. He's had his downfalls. He's had his off-the-course issues. But here's the numbers. 109 wins, $120 million plus of on-course earnings, plenty more off the course. It's by far the most in PGA history. In fact, it's $26 million more than the, the number two Phil Mickelson, who's at 94 and change right now. And then number three is Dustin Johnson, just over $72 million in his career. That's your top three. So from first to third, you go 120 million to 72 million. So that is just how dominant Tiger Woods was for that those first really 10 to 12 years before injuries and things like that started to settle in. And you know, we may never see this guy back on the course again. So any kind of anniversary milestone mark we get with him, uh, I want to make sure we call it out because it was fantastic to watch. He certainly stands atop the league, you know, the, the PGA in many, many cases, but certainly with finances as well. So we'll see if that's, in, that's ever eclipsed. I can't even imagine um, unless these tournament pots really, really take a step forward that somebody's going to get close. Dustin's $50 million away still. 
Number four, Harrison Smith locks in a huge extension with the Minnesota Vikings who have a sneaky good defense right now. Add Patrick Peterson, add, add a couple of nice players with an already good defensive line. This guy, they finally lock him in after a franchise tag situation. Four years, $64 million. He gets $22.5 million in the next eight months, according to Ian Rappaport. It's a, the new money average is just over 15, right? It's 15.3, which is, makes him second to Jamal Adams in terms of safeties. There's 26 million plus guaranteed on this contract. So it's a two-year deal. It's fully guaranteed in that regard. It's gonna, it's heavily front-loaded with the cash, which is probably the concessions he took. There's probably three years of flop from this thing, but good for the Vikings, recognizing this guy had to stick around, regardless of what happens with many of the offensive pieces. This is a good deal. It's the second best safety deal we have right now. And once we have that full breakdown, we'll have a bigger piece on that for sure. Number three, I haven't spoken about this in a while, and it's kind of getting lost behind the scenes with litigation and a process that may be going in his favor. But Trevor Bauer remains on the restricted list in Major League Baseball while the Dodgers soar in towards the postseason, by the way. He was added to the restricted list on July 2nd, which means, theoretically, there are now 60 days on the books that he's been paid while on the restricted list, while staying away from the Dodgers, while staying away from baseball as a whole, really. That's almost $10 million earned from his 2021 salary during that time period. And there's plenty more coming over the next month. It's paid leave. Here's the caveat. Just want to bring this to note. It's on our, it's on our website. It's been noted in many other websites. $20 million of his $28 million salary for this year isn't actually paid out until November 30th, 2021. So a good portion of this is not cash in hand right now. Why is that important? Look, the, the fact that he's on paid lead means he's accruing this earnings, right? He's essentially locking in these earnings. But if things turn the wrong way at, at some point during the legal process here, the fact that he doesn't have the cash certainly makes it a lot easier for the Dodgers not to have to pay that money. We see it in football. We've seen teams try to hold on to things that they don't think is correct. Earl Thomas, recent situation in Baltimore. Um, you know, Todd Gurley had a bit of that with the Rams, though that was eventually paid out on his exit. But it's it's important to note that, yes, he's accrued this money, almost $10 million. It's about nine and a half right now over the past month and a half. He, uh, he doesn't have it in his hands. He's only earned $8 million cash this year, plus a signing bonus that's been paid out over two... two uh, two separate payments. So a total of $18 million, he's got cash in hand right now. But the remaining 20, not till the end of November, if any of this litigation process turns against him and the Dodgers and Major League Baseball start to clamp down on his career and his financial situation and his contract, yes, there will be lawyers. Yes, the, the Players Association will certainly get involved and it'll get ugly before it gets better. But just important to note that while he is on paid leave, the cash isn't coming his way right now. There's a de deferred payment on it. And that does make it a little bit easier to not pay it if it has to. Number two, kind of got swept under the rug this weekend. There was a huge trade in the NBA. Not huge. Good-sized trade in the NBA with Cleveland, Chicago, and another team as well. Rajon Rondo bought out by the Memphis Grizzlies after he was acquired just about two weeks ago now in the Patrick Beverly deal, Eric Bledsoe as well, bought out by Memphis. He, he is now a free agent. He agreed to a deal. It's rumored high, heavily that he's going to head to the Lakers. 
which means because the Lakers have no exceptions, they have no way now to acquire players. There's certainly not cap space there. Practical cap space of negative 51 million for those <laughs> playing at home. He will become the seventh, eighth free agent minimum contract. That's just how the Lakers are operating. Carmelo Anthony, minimum. Trevor Reza, minimum. Wayne Ellington, Dwight Howard, Ken Bazemore, Malik Monk, even Marcus Saul, a free agent minimum. And then Kendrick Nunn brought in on the exception, $5 million of exception. Add in Rondo, and you've got another player coming in on 2.6 million cash, 1.6 million cap. It is Westbrook at 44, LeBron at 41, AD at 35, Taylor Horton Tucker at 9.5, which just seems bonkers right now, thinking about it out loud. And then veteran experienced minimum contracts. This is a weird way to build a team. It's it's the where the NBA is going. You need a big three and then fill in the blanks with superstars who are, you know, past superstars who can become glue guys, depth guys, and can fully complement that big three. It's a weird way that the NBA has turned here, but we're here. Many of these teams are going this route. The Lakers didn't really have a choice. They didn't have the assets to sign and trade after doing what they did for Westbrook. So this was always going to be how the rest of their summer was going to go for them to bring in the kind of names they've brought in now. And, and assuming Rondo is that next name, I guess you have to say they've overachieved and that's, that has to do with LeBron certainly and his ability to attract people and attract free agency, but also the Lakers as well. It's a destination for sure, but just a, Unbelievable offseason of bare minimum cash, bare minimum cap, and a blockbuster trade for Westbrook. We'll see if this can get to the finish line for the Lakers. And number one, I buried the lead in the headline here, but the uh, it is NFL cutdown week. NFL rosters have to get down to 53 active players by Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, after which waiver wires come in, after which practice squads are built. I put a huge thread out this morning on Twitter, kind of breaking down some of the basics and the specifics of how this week could go. I'll kind of just quickly run through it. Number one, uh, out of the gate. Yes, at 4 p.m. Eastern, <laughs> there will be a 53-man roster for every team, but it couldn't be a more fluid situation, right? Teams are immediately going to turn to the waiver wire, see who was out there, see who can upgrade their current roster, so somebody who makes the initial 53 at 4 p.m. could be cut by 5 p.m. It's just that easy. Um, trades will happen. Plenty of movement will happen, okay? So while we're going to rush and rush and rush around and make sure these rosters are compliant at that moment, just know that you know I, anything getting posted in picture format in terms of a roster, it's a snapshot. Okay. It's going to be fluid and fluid and moving and constantly changing. And that's really how the whole season will work, especially with the COVID situation involved. Let's lead me into my next point. Reserve list. If there's a player on the COVID list right now, and Dem can sue some of those bigger names, they won't count towards the active 53, which means somebody else will make that roster. There will, there will be somebody making the roster for Dem can sue on Tuesday. But when Sue comes back off that COVID list, that player is likely out the door. So again, more fluidity because of the COVID list. Not the case for the IR. If a player is hit, put on the IR, the injured reserve, prior to September 1st, prior to this, this upcoming deadline, they're done for the year in terms of that, that current contract. The only way they can come back and join a team, whether it's that same team or a different team, is they are released out of that contract, released off of injured reserve. They become a free agent. They can either re-sign with that team or sign somewhere else on a brand new contract. But there's no designation for return for players who have hit the IR prior to September 1st. 
after the fact, after September 1st, when we, we start our in-season mode, everybody can be designated for return. And it's a three-week turnaround, not a six-week turnaround. Again, that's still the new protocols. Practice squads, I mentioned them. They're coming in a couple of days here. 16 players. You can protect four every week. Six of those 16 can be players with more than two years of experience. So you can shelve some veterans down there, pay them a little bit extra to make them happy and, and make them your, your plus two call-ups on game day. That's still available to, to, to rosters this season. The minimum practice squad salary, $9,200. So there's a lot of wiggle room here. It's a pretty good pay. It's better pay than many of those leagues that, that have started up on, on a weekly basis. It's still a pretty good spot to be in for some of these rookies who's trying to latch on somewhere. And there will be plenty of bouncing around this year. Plenty. Uh, two more things. Vested veterans. If you are accrued past, you're considered a veteran, so more than four years experience, and you are on a contract right now, under contract, your salary becomes fully guaranteed leading up to that, that final cut. Okay, so the second, if you make that initial 53-man roster, bingo, your salary is guaranteed. Okay, many teams will skate this by cutting those players right before the deadline, bringing them back a couple of days later. There's, a, of course, a wink-wink situation between player, agent, and team. Um, you know, this is a, it's kind of a crappy situation for those players because the lock-in guarantee is something that they should have the right to, re- to retain. But most guys just want to make the roster. It's getting harder and harder for those near minimum guys to make these rosters as it is. So uh, you'll see plenty of that happen. And if you see a name that you think, oh my God, a key absolutely should be on this team, calm down. He's probably coming back in 48 hours, okay? This is just semantics. They want to make sure that vested veteran guarantee is off their table so they can maneuver the roster a little bit more and make it more fluid during the season. And last thing, there's plenty of cuts coming, tons of cuts coming, hundreds of cuts. These are great athletes and they're going to lose jobs. And a lot of them won't get, get a job back this year. Some of them will never get a job back in the NFL. Okay. This is real life for them. So while for us, we're looking at spot track and spreadsheets and fantasy rosters and all this stuff, their names, and we kind of toss them around as if they are fantasy. They're not. Okay. Some of these people, you know, these people are really losing jobs this week. So just take it easy, take it easy with the rhetoric, you know, with the, with the tweets, there will be decisions you don't like for sure. There will be games you don't like. Just remember, these are human beings and they are they have worked their asses off to get here and many of them are not going to make it. So it's a rough time for, for some of these guys just on the bubble right now. And it's a rough time for some of those veterans trying to stick in the league as well. But uh, just take it easy. That's all. Simple approach. All right. Let's switch the gears to college football, college sports, the business of college sports with the great Christy Dosh. But first, today's edition of the Spotrack Podcast is presented by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, dedicated to serving the unique wealth management needs of athletes and top professionals in the sports and entertainment industry. Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment strives to bring sports professionals the financial solutions they need, including access to financing, supporting prospective NFL and NBA athletes through the draft process. Find out more today about Morgan Stanley's pre and post draft loan program at morganstanley.com GSE. MorganStanley.com slash GSE. Really excited to be joined today by Christy Dosh. She's the founder of the Business of College Sports website, businessofcollegesports.com. She is a Forbes Sports Business contributor. She's been with ESPN in her past. There's plenty to talk about. Christy, thanks so much for joining. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, how did it all get going? It's been a bunch of years now, I think. There's a, there's a lot on the resume. There's a book. There's plenty to talk about here. How did it all start? Yeah. You know, the number one thing I tell students when I go talk to them is don't put on blinders and think you know what you want to do with your life and just, you know, put on blinders to all those other opportunities because I grew up wanting to be a lawyer and I went to law school and I always thought it would be cool if sports uh, had something to do with my legal career, but being a lawyer was kind of first and foremost for me. And I did some internships in sports, but ultimately ended up going to work for a firm doing commercial real estate and uh, corporate law, (laughs) nothing to do with sports. But, you know, I've told people when you're really passionate about something, you find a way to do it anyway, maybe not even consciously. And so I was blogging on the side about legal issues in sports. I actually started a blog while I was still in law school and then sort of continued it into practicing. And I guess lucky for me, although it didn't feel lucky at the time, I graduated law school in 07. And as the market started to tank my first couple of years, our work really dried up at the law firm. And so as my legal work dried up, I wrote more and more and more about the business of sports and became really interested in the business of college sports. And I always say, you know, I was in the right place at the right time writing about the right thing because I had started writing about finances in college athletics just because it interested me. There was nothing in particular going on at that point in time. And then all of a sudden conference realignment heated up. This was almost exactly 10 years ago. And I was in that right place at the right time. I was already studying the finances and the television contracts. And that had so much to do with what was happening in conference realignment. And so I, I always say conference realignment really launched my career. It got me a book deal. It got me a job offer from ESPN to be a sports business reporter. And I have never practiced law again since then. <laughs> it is my, my 10 year anniversary <laughs> of being retired from law. <laughs> what a good gig. Isn't it funny how if you just kind of stick to the things you love, something can pop in front you like that and you can run with it, right? It's yeah. it's excellent. So the, the website is extremely thorough. There is a ton to dive into here. I, let's try to stay on the surface and, and let our audience kind of go and figure it out for themselves because I think there's different audiences for different sections of your site. Are you more of a, a resource guide or do you actually get into consulting some of these college athletes with this with with name image likeness? Are you kind of dealing with the finances of the BCS and things like that? Or is it more of you look to track this stuff and speak to it as it comes into conversation? Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of evolved over the years. You know, I started just writing what I was interested in and that was the finances in the very beginning. And so a lot of my early content was around how much schools were making or not making uh, on various sports, not just football and basketball, but on other sports as well. And then conference realignment happened. And I talked a lot about, you know, the strategy behind conference realignment. And as I dove into the business of college sports and I started writing my book, um, I think I more and more attracted an audience of people who work in college athletics or around college athletics. So, you know, law firms and architecture firms and accountants who service athletic departments. So I would say that 80 plus percent of my audience are people who work in and around college athletics, not necessarily fans, because what I found over the years is 
fans are only interested in the business side when they absolutely have to be <laughs> like, like during conference realignment, when they have to understand why something's happening. And so my reporting really morphed over the years when I was at ESPN, it was obviously for fans, but after I left ESPN in 2013, it became far more about writing for the industry and trying to let people who work in and around college athletics know what they needed to know because I had started getting emails and phone calls from college athletic department saying, you know, have you ever seen this? You know, have you ever seen that? Do you have any documents on this thing? Um, because they knew I had amassed all this data and I had done all these public information requests and gotten all sorts of financials and contracts from schools. And as they were trying to make business decisions, they were trying to gather all the data and intel that they could. And so in the beginning, it was literally me just like forwarding things to people like, oh, you want to see that contract? Here it is. <laughs> um, it wasn't something I was charging anybody for, but I did eventually have a consulting company come uh, and ask me if I would jump in on a few projects with them and sort of share my databases and my information. And so I have worked on a number of consulting projects over the last probably five or six years. Uh, some of it has been adding or cutting sports. It's been changing conferences, moving divisions, getting naming rights partners for arenas and stadiums. Um, and that has increased my knowledge about the business of college sports because I've never worked in an athletic department. And so there's still a lot I don't know and don't understand that you just wouldn't get if you weren't there every day. But getting to do these consulting gigs and go on campus and really talk through business decisions uh, has made me more knowledgeable about the whole process. And then I think that really helps my reporting in turn. So uh, it's a delicate balance because I have to be careful. There's no conflicts of interest. I'm not writing about projects that I'm working on and that sort of thing. But I like I like kind of being on all sides of it. <laughs> you get to see different things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No question about it. So th that's a smooth transition, I think, into your book, Saturday Millionaires. I couldn't be more relevant right now. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh my goodness. I I'm finding you at the perfect time here, I think you know, you dive into how the athletic departments are run, how, how powerful football is. And I, I believe you, you sort of say it should be that way. Football should be at the forefront of these athletic departments because of the money that comes out of it. Coaching pay and maybe how disastrous that is. I have to imagine you get into buyouts um, and how the athletes won't be getting salaries. And, and let's transition to that, Christy. They aren't getting paid by universities right now. They have the opportunity to get paid outside of universities. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand with all this? Having done all the work for this book, and now we're here, now, now everything is changing and realignment's coming right after this, of course. How, how should athletes consider themselves right now? Are they, are they in, a, in a better spot? Is it a really big ocean that many of these fish are going to get eaten up in? How do you stand right now with, with how this, this name image like this situation is coming into the forefront? Yeah, I think there's so much opportunity for student athletes. And it's not just the opportunity to make money off their autograph or from a social media post. It's really an opportunity to learn hard skills and to build platforms and personal brands that they can take with them beyond graduation that really, you know, in some cases have very little to do with their position as a student athlete. And I've spent years going into athletic departments and talking to student athletes about preparing for life after graduation. That was just some speaking that I got into uh, about 10 years ago and have always done. 
And one of the things they've told me the most over the years is that when they graduate, they feel behind their peers in their classes because the other students have had time to do internships in their field. And often student athletes have not had the time to do internships and there's nothing to put on their resume and they feel really behind. And I actually think this is opening up a lot of opportunity for them to learn how to be social media marketers, to learn how to run a podcast, to run a blog, um, you know, to run their own merchandise store. They're doing a variety of things. And even if after graduation, they decide, hey, I I don't want to run my own business. I mean, look, I do run my own business and it is not a cakewalk. (laughs) Uh, So I get people that are like, I just want to go work for somebody and get a salary. But now at least they're going to have some real skills and experience that they can put on that resume and that they can take with them after graduation. And I think that's the coolest part about NIL. It's a really unique uh, angle to the approach. You know, it's less, it's, it's certainly about the money in, in many cases, but in a lot of cases, it's kind of small money, right? It's, it's a couple yeah. of dollars here and there. So you're right. There has to be another side to it. And that's an interesting way to look at it. Not to mention they're getting to deal with some pretty decent companies, you know, and kind of see how those companies are run and see how m- maybe it's a quick and easy internship just to kind of understand how the marketing approach works and things like that. Let's talk college football money here because what's funny to me is like 10 months a year, we're all supposed to just forget that this is a huge industry and that these are CEOs <laughs> running, you know, corporations versus, you know, it's a business. Of course, it's a business. It's a huge business. And now I don't think there's anywhere else to look but the money side of it. And that's what this realignment is all about. That's what this power conference in college football is about to become. Are you for it? Is this where it was always going to go and we're here and now there's no turning back, right? You know, it's complicated because I always thought that, you know, where the line was going to be drawn was that student athletes were never going to be found to be employees, uh, you know, that that change would never happen. However, just in the last week, there has been a ruling from a judge in Pennsylvania that uh, does not take us all the way there, but uh, gets us part of the way there that maybe this in particular judge at least thinks that uh, student athletes are employees. And that opens up a whole new host of issues, um, not the least of which is the nonprofit status of the athletic department. Some athletic departments are their own 501c3. Others are under the umbrella of their university. But I ended up doing an entire chapter in my book years ago about how problematic it would be if they were found to be employees because of the way athletic departments would have to be restructured uh, because of the tax implications around it. And I never thought we would get there. And I, I feel a lot differently about that now. I feel like we could get there. And my... I guess my concern is right now, football and men's basketball largely fund every other college sport. And so if if we're moving to an employment model and we're going to look at this more like the for-profit world, you know, in the for-profit world, the example I always use is Coca-Cola. Okay. If Sprite year after year after year was posting losses and they had to use the money from, you know, Coke and Diet Coke to prop up Sprite they would make the business decision at some point to cut Sprite. (laughs) Um, But college athletics isn't like that. You can't just cut all the sports that don't make money. First of all, you'd be down to probably two sports at most schools, football and men's basketball. It's rare for women's basketball to make money. Every once in a while, you have a baseball team that makes money, but it's a handful each year. And I think one time I saw Nebraska women's volleyball actually uh, made money. So it happens here and there, but 
Title IX, you know, comes into play and people always say don't use Title IX as a scapegoat. But the fact remains that it exists it is a federal law <laughs> and it would have to change if we're talking about changing all these other things in college athletics and we're moving to a for-profit model where their employees, you know, in that case, they're going to have to start paying their own scholarships. They're probably not going to get that if they're an employee, you know, and then the whole model of college athletics change, you know, for for good or, you know, worse, I don't know, but it's really different than college athletics as we have seen it. And I didn't think we would ever get there, but based on the ruling we've had here recently and based on the Supreme Court ruling we had a couple of months ago, uh, we're maybe closer than I thought we were. That is a slippery slope. Yeah. I, I mean, that is... <laughs> it makes my head hurt. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is such an upheaval with what many of these, I'm sure, universities want to even start to think about. But it's... I think you're right. I, I think it's probably coming because there's going to have to be some protection. That's This might be too big of a question, and, and I apologize if it is. But who is protecting the players right now? The athletes, the college athletes. Like, Is the NCAA doing anything for them right now in this regard? Or is it really just go and figure this out for yourself and have brilliant people like yourself help and consult and, and sit down with these athletes and try to co coax them in the right direction. Is there any kind of governing body saying, you know, we've got your back if, if things go wrong? You know, it, big picture, it's the NCAA, it's the conferences, it's the institutions, you know, they have rules around health and safety. There's always a lot of arguments about whether there are enough rules and whether they are enforced at the level that they should be. So that's how it should be working is that the NCAA and conferences and institutions that you've got like those three layers of protection, you know, whether that is physical health, it's mental health, uh, you know, insurance for when things go wrong, medical treatment, and even just getting them through this period of their life where they are supposed to be on your campus first and foremost as a student and getting an education and sort of protecting that component of it. But I think we all know that uh, I, I don't know anyone, including people I know who work in college athletics, who would say that the NCAA is doing a great job of that. Uh, and I think that's why you see this constitutional convention coming up in this reimagining of how college athletics is going to work. Now, I think it's happening because of that Alston Supreme Court decision. And I think what they're attempting to do is sort of split power out and push it down to the conference level where you're less likely to have an antitrust lawsuit versus leaving all the power up at the top with the NCAA. However, I hope what comes out of that are increased rules around safety and welfare and health and that sort of thing, but that remains to be seen. You mentioned some of these smaller sports getting cut, and obviously that's going to be an increasing situation if college football teams break off into this own power division, maybe even, I would assume, away from the NCAA. Is what college football is going towards going to benefit these smaller sports? You have a tracker. You have a bunch of trackers on this website, by the way, that yeah. are great. And you've <laughs> I been, love a good spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, God, you're speaking. <laughs> you're preaching to the choir there. Um, look, you, you, you've been tracking the sports that were cut, but there's a lot of strike throughs because Stanford brought back almost all of their sports. Many of the Ivy Leagues brought back many of these smaller, smaller sports. What was the change? Was it increased revenues? Was it 
They just decided from a PR standpoint and from a, from a human standpoint that it was better to have these sports? Or is it that things are going in two different directions and that may actually benefit these universities? It was largely lawsuits, um, oh, which awesome. we have not seen previously with cuts. I mean, cuts happen, I won't say every year, but every few years, there's usually a school or two that has a newsworthy cut. You know, I actually worked on uh, the consulting team that went in after UAB's football team was cut a few years back. I mean, that was a huge story because no one had cut football in like two decades um, and they ended up bringing the sport back. But a lot of what we saw cut was obviously cut because of the pandemic, but brought back because of Title IX lawsuits. So you had a lot of female teams where you had multiple members of the team, you know, four, five, six people on the team decide to go in together and file a Title IX lawsuit about whether or not the school was providing ample opportunity for female athletes. And so you saw a lot of men's sports getting cut too. It's not like they weren't both getting cut and you've got to cut, you know, proportionately with the makeup of your entire undergraduate body. Uh, but some of them perhaps didn't run the numbers quite right and made some quick decisions and it ended up looking like it was having a disproportionate effect on female sports. And sometimes when they brought back female female sports. They also had to bring back some male sports to keep those proportions intact. But the vast majority of sports that got brought back were from Title IX lawsuits. And then you had a few that were brought back by fundraising uh, where donors banded together and said, how much money do we have to raise to save the program? In some cases, it only saved the program for one year. In other cases, the numbers the school gave were to save the program for three years or five years or to endow it permanently. So that kind of varies from school to school. Uh, but those are the two main ways we saw sports come back. And then Stanford's an outlier, I would yeah. say. They have the largest athletic department in the country in terms of the number of sports that they sponsor. It's always Stanford and Ohio State right at the top. Uh, they take pride in the number of sports they cut. So it was actually the biggest surprise for me. I was incredibly shocked when I saw they had cut sports because they take such pride in how many they sponsor. Um, I think for them, they realized their deficit from last year wasn't going to be as big as they had feared. And so as finances seem to stabilize, I think they decided to go ahead and reverse those. It's really fascinating. Um, you're right. It is an annual situation, unfortunately, but it seemed like that for a, a few years there, the pandemic was an excuse to, to kind of get rid of more than, than the usual. And it's good to see that a lot of that has come back, even if it had to be forced through the judicial system. Yeah. If you had to give any advice to some of these college athletes right now, I'm sure you're doing this right now. I'm sure you're, you're, you're walking into these situations and trying to give as much advice as possible. Is it just to explore your opportunities? Don't take the first thing you see. I mean, what kind of mistakes are you seeing out there, Christy? You know, I'd say the biggest mistakes happening are student athletes who aren't following uh, the school's instructions and rules. I've heard from a lot of compliance folks and even from some student athletes. And, and at this point, everybody understands this is a learning process. You know, nobody's getting their eligibility stripped because they made a small mistake. But I would say the two biggest mistakes have been uh, some athletic departments require you to disclose the deal a certain number of days, either at, in advance of signing the contract or a certain number of days after you sign it. And just student athletes not meeting those deadlines, particularly the ones where you have to disclose ahead of finalizing the deal. Some of them 
didn't quite get that and they're not going to their compliance officers until they've already signed things, um, but they're kind of learning as they go. And then the other one involves uh, university and athletic department intellectual property. In fact, I pulled compliance folks earlier this week, just sort of informally. And I said, you know, what are the three biggest questions you're getting right now? And every single department I asked, and there was about two dozen, every single one said intellectual property because mm. student athletes aren't fully thinking about it. And they're using, say, a photo where they've got their, uh, you know, school tennis T-shirt on. You know, they're thinking, well, I'm not in a jersey, but they're not thinking that there's this tiny little school logo on their T-shirt. Well, you can't use that photo in a campaign you're getting paid for, you could use it as just a regular Instagram post. But if a brand is paying you to post something and you're holding up, you know, your chicken fingers from this local restaurant in one hand, and I can clearly see the logo of your university on your t-shirt, you know, some of them just didn't really fully understand that that was an issue. And so there have been, I think, quite a few cases where student athletes have been told they can't do something or they have to take something down because they haven't gotten the proper permission to use that intellectual property. So I'd say those are, are the two big ones they're navigating right now. This was fantastic. I think I could listen another 45 minutes to an hour oh, on this stuff. Oh, thank you. I, mean, I, well, I can talk stuff. about it all day. I love this stuff. I can tell. <laughs> I can totally tell that you are living and breathing this stuff. And, uh, <laughs> it's really great to see it. I can't wait to have you back and talk more about this college football mess because I think there's yes, going to be a lot of twists and turns. It's a weekly podcast. There's plenty of appearances. I know you're doing a lot of speaking engagements, things like that. Um, are you on Twitter? Are you on the socials? I would imagine yes, right? Yes, I spend uh, more time than I should on Twitter. So that's definitely where it's easiest to catch me is on Twitter um, at SportsBizMiss. And then I also spend a lot of time uh, writing on my site, Business of College Sports. Thanks so much for your time today, Christy. Thanks for having me. My thanks so much to Christy Dosh. Please follow her on Twitter. Please go to her website. Please listen to her podcast. She is a whiz at what she does and only learning more and conveying that message more and more every single day. So a wonderful follow. I enjoyed that conversation so much. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription and visit Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. morganstanley.com slash G-S-E. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Track Podcast. 